O God of eternal joy, at the baptism of Your Son in the Jordan River, You opened the heavens, You spoke words of love, and You bestowed Your Holy Spirit upon Him. Remind us continually of our baptisms when You united us to Your Son, declaring us to be Your adopted sons and equipping us for service by pouring out Your Holy Spirit upon us. O God of steadfast love, at the wedding in Cana, Your Son Jesus turned water into wine, delighting all who were there. So now we ask You, transform our hearts by Your Spirit that we may use our varied gifts to show forth the light of Your love as one body in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask that You would speak to us today through Your Word and by Your Spirit so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. These days we hear a lot about trigger warnings. Trigger warnings that are designed to protect people from anything they might find offensive. The warning is there so that people won't be triggered by something that offends them. We want to protect people from any kind of offense. Well, I would say this passage in Mark 11 probably needs a trigger warning. Uh, It is an offensive passage. It is an offensive defense of the authority of Jesus. It's certainly offensive to those who don't trust and love Jesus, but even to those of us who do, we can find something about this passage rubbing us the wrong way. See, the real issue in this passage is the authority of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus asserts His absolute authority. And there's no safe zone you can run to to get away from His claims of absolute authority. Authority that covers everything, including every aspect of your life. I think part of the problem, one of the reasons we have trigger warnings today, and uh, one of the reasons a passage like this, uh, you, you could say, needs a trigger warning, is it's not just the authority of Jesus that is offensive to us, it's the very concept of authority is offensive to people today. Authority means there is someone outside myself who has power over me and who has the right to tell me what to do and what to not do and who can hold me accountable and who can punish me if I disobey. You know, people have always known that authority could be abused, but it seems that today the very concept of authority is considered abusive. And so what does our culture do? Our culture glamorizes rebellion against authority. We think all authority is oppressive. And so to be in authority, to have a position of authority, means you are a tyrant. And to be under authority means you are a victim. Now, it's easy to see why we are so distrustful of authority today, why we're so suspicious. It is because we really have seen authority abused in so many ways. We've seen people in authority abuse their power again and again. We've seen it with presidents. We've seen it with priests and with pastors. We've seen it with parents. Everywhere you turn, it seems you see people who are in power abusing that authority. And so, of course, we are suspicious of authority. But what gets overlooked is that authority is inescapable. 
Even for those who challenge authority, authority is inescapable. Even those who cast off one authority will quickly find themselves simply having created an alternative authority that they now stand under. It's important for us to remember that the very first rebellion against authority was led by Satan himself. Satan who sought to escape the authority of God. And then, of course, Adam and Eve joined in that rebellion against God's authority. They too rebelled against God's authority. But what we find in these cases is they didn't do away with authority. They cast off one form of of authority, actually in this case, God's good authority, and simply found themselves now under a tyrannical form of authority. They cast off God's loving authority only to find themselves under a truly oppressive authority. And we've seen the same kind of thing happen, the same dynamic at work in the modern world. We cast off one authority thinking it is tyrannical, only to find an even more tyrannical authority has risen up to take in its place. Moderns can be very authoritarian without even realizing it. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said the distinguishing feature of the modern world is not its skepticism, but its dogmatism. It is dogmatic without knowing it. He says modern people assume a creed and then forget they have assumed it. We assume some authority and then we forget that it's really an authority over us. We have this romantic notion that we can cast off authority, that we can do without authority, that we can live without being under authority. But no, as one of your own prophets has said, you've got to serve someone. You cannot do without authority. We can never do away with authority altogether. Authority is inescapable. You know, you used to see those bumper stickers that would say, question authority. And uh, I heard somebody once say that they wanted to print a a bumper sticker in response that would say, who are you to tell me what to question? Why does the bumper sticker, question authority, take authority? You know, or we're told constantly in the modern world, think for yourself. Think for yourself. Well, wait a second. Who are you to tell me how to think? How dare you tell me to think for myself? See, authority is inescapable. You cannot escape it, nor should you try. God has made the world in such a way that authority is essential. It's essential to human life. It is essential to human flourishing. Again, it is true. Authority can be abused. But good authority, godly authority, is a blessing. We need to understand all authority ultimately traces back to God. All authority comes from God and finds God as its source. Authority is not just a social construct. Uh, Human beings don't create authority. God has built authority structures into the world, in family, in church, in state. God has built these authority structures into His creation. A father or a pastor or a king who abuses his authority does incredible harm. Even one bad decision on the part of an authority figure can have disastrous consequences for a multitude of others. It can have downstream effects that can really hurt people. But loving and responsible authority figures, loving and responsible fathers and pastors and kings do the world incredible good. C.S. Lewis once wrote, authority exercised with humility and obedience to that authority with delight are the very lines along which our spirits live. 
Obedience to this kind of authority is the road to freedom. C.S. Lewis says here, we were made for these kinds of relationships in which there are leaders and followers. Those who are in authority, who rule, and those who submit to them. And Lewis illustrates perfectly what this means in his book from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy. There's a young man, Kor, who is learning from his father, King Loon, how to be king himself. It's kind of like a Proverbs dynamic where the father is king and he's teaching his son, the prince, how to be king. Kor is going to be king over Archenland after his father. And Kor wonders, can a king do whatever he wants, including casting off the office of king? Did he so desire? And he's told, no, the king is under the law, for it's the law that makes him a king. And he can no more cast off his office than a soldier can desert his sentry post. And then his father explains what true kingship means. He says, for this is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as there must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That King Loon there is describing for his son good authority, good leadership, what it looks like, what it looks like in times of war, what it looks like in times of famine. Leadership that is sacrificial, that is accountable, that is responsible. Leadership that is servant-oriented. Think of the difference that good authority makes in our everyday lives. Authority helps us to work together in community as a team. Authority brings out the best in us and helps us to use our gifts to their full potential. Imagine a world without authority. Imagine a football team without a coach. A team with no coach, so there's no authority to tell the players what play to run or how to run it. It would be a disaster. That's a team that's not going to win a game. What makes a team successful is obedience to a wise authority. Football teams in the state have demonstrated what a difference good coaching, good authority in that role can make, right? Or think about an orchestra. Without a conductor in charge of all the musicians, exercising authority over all the musicians, what happens? Each musician is going to play his own chosen song in his own chosen way, at his own chosen tempo. It's going to be a cacophony. It's not anything you would pay money to go hear. But a good conductor will get them all playing off the same sheet of music in the same way. So the instruments come together in this beautiful, harmonious way. See, the authority creates something beautiful, something wonderful. It brings out the best in each player, in each musician. See, authority truly is crucial. What we have in this passage in Mark chapter 11... And in fact, in this entire part of Mark's Gospel, this whole section of Mark's Gospel deals with this, what we have here is a contest of authority. That's really what's at issue here, is the authority or the the kingship or the lordship of Jesus. Is Jesus a rightful authority? Does He have authority over Israel, over Jerusalem, over the temple? Is He Israel's rightful king? Repeatedly in this section, the authority of Jesus will be questioned and challenged. It is as if Jesus is being put on trial. His authority is being put on trial. 
Jesus is being tested and tried, but what's really being tried and judged here is the authority of Jesus. Here in this passage we've read this morning, it is the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the scribes who come to question Him. This seems to be an official delegation of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the highest, highest court in Israel. The Sanhedrin was made up of the chief priests and the experts in the law and the scribes. Together they composed this court that had the highest office in Israel. And a delegation from this court comes to test the authority of Jesus, to challenge that authority, to question it. But this continues on in chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. The Pharisees and the Herodians come to challenge the authority of Jesus and put Him on trial. In chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, the Sadducees come to put His authority on trial. In chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, a scribe comes to Jesus seeking to judge Him and His claim. So you have all these different authorities in Israel who come to test the authority of Jesus. They come to challenge that authority and question that authority. But what we're going to find this morning and actually in the weeks to come is in each of these trials, each time as Jesus is tested, each time as His authority is put to the test, each time Jesus is acquitted and vindicated, His authority stands. In fact, in each case, he turns the accusations back on his accusers and indeed silences them. They come making accusations. He confounds them and silences them. And of course, a silenced accuser is a defeated accuser. In each trial, Jesus is justified and his accusers are actually the ones who end up condemned. Jesus is vindicated. They're condemned. In fact, this whole section ends in chapter 12, verse 34, with the words, no one dared ask Him any more questions. He has silenced their questions. He has silenced their accusations. They question His authority. And that authority, the authority of Jesus, has stood firm. Let's look at this story here at the end of Mark 11 in a little more detail. This story is worth a closer look. Where are we in the sequence of things? This is the third straight day Jesus has come into Jerusalem and into the temple. And each day He's put on a display of His authority. He's put on a grand display of His authority. The first day He came into Jerusalem was His triumphal entry. When He rode into the city like a king. And He basically acted like He owned the city of Jerusalem. Like He was Lord of the city. Like He's a new Davidic king. The second day, He went into the temple and He drove out those buying and selling there. He shut down the temple services momentarily. He acted like He owned the temple. Like it was His own personal possession. Like He was a new chief priest with authority over the temple. This is the third day and He makes a third visit to the temple. And now the authority He has exercised the previous two days will be tested. He has to answer for what He's done. What the representatives of the Sanhedrin want to know is this. By what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things? Jesus, who gave you this authority? In other words, what they're really asking is, Jesus, just who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do these things? They want to know. What are His credentials? 
Where did he get his degree? Who licensed him to come into their temple and overturn the tables? What degrees does Jesus have? What titles does he possess? Who backs him up? Where did he get the right to act this way? In fact, I think it's especially interesting to look at the second part of the question they ask. They want to know who gave Jesus this authority. Who authorized Jesus to say what He's saying and to do what He's doing? What is the source of His authority? They know that authority is a grant. They know that authority must be granted. It can't be self-authorizing. It has to be bestowed. And actually, I think in this particular point, Jesus and the Sanhedrin are in agreement. Every time Jesus talks about authority... He basically talks about it in the same way as authority being given or bestowed by one to another. When Jesus, a little bit later, stands trial before Pontius Pilate, He's able to say in John's account, He says to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over Me unless it had been given to you from above. Authority is a grant. It's a bestowal. It's a gift. In the Great Commission, the last words of Jesus to His disciples before He ascends into heaven, He says to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. So therefore, go and baptize the nations, making them My disciples. So Jesus agrees that authority must be bestowed. It is a grant. Authority is given. In fact, I'd say we all know this. It's just the way authority works. Think about this. What's the difference between a fake ID and a legitimate ID? What's the difference between a fake ID and a legitimate ID? I mean, both cards may have all the same information. They may have even the same picture. What's the difference then? What makes one fake and the other legit? Well, the difference is who gives the card, who issues the card. If you make your own driver's license, it has no authority because you're not authorized to issue licenses. Nobody has given you that authority. You can't self-authorize a driver's license. You've got to go through the properly authorized channels. Your card has to be given to you by the right authoritative department. Or, you know, sometimes today we hear these stories about people who impersonate police officers. These people are impersonating police officers and so they put lights on their car and they act like they're police officers pulling people over and actually they're not making traffic stops to write people tickets like a police officer will do. They pull the person over and then they actually end up robbing them or doing something to them. But we might ask, what makes one traffic stop legitimate and the other not? What makes somebody a real police officer who really has the right to pull you over and another person just an imposter? where they don't have that authority. Well, again, it's, it's, it's where does the authorization come from? We have to ask, who authorized you to make a traffic stop? Who gave you your badge? Legitimate officers are those who are authorized by the government, by the civil magistrate, those to whom God has entrusted this kind of authority. And so that's really the issue here in Mark 11. The Sanhedrin wants to know, what official authority does Jesus have? The Sanhedrin wants to know if Jesus is just impersonating a king or if He's the real deal. 
Did Jesus create a, a fake license himself that says, I am the Messiah? Or is he really the Messiah? Is he an imposter claiming authority for himself? Or has he really been granted true authority? That's their question. Now, how does Jesus deal with their question? He does not give them a direct response. Jesus does not give them a straight answer. He's not evading their question, but He is going to expose their false motives in asking this question. Uh, They're not asking this question in good faith. And so what does Jesus do? He gives them a riddle of sorts. A riddle they won't be able to solve. A riddle that is going to silence them. And this in itself should have shown them something. Who speaks in riddles like this? You've got to go back to the wise men of ancient Israel who were the kings like Solomon. Solomon spoke this way. Jesus is a greater Solomon. He's doing the kind of thing Solomon did. Giving a riddle they can't solve. They have asked about His authority. They are thinking to themselves, alright, if He says that He's acting on His own authority, we can accuse Him of being a megalomaniac after all, no one has the authority to shut down God's temple, God's temple on his own. No one can shut down God's temple on his own authority. So if he claims his authority is self-authorizing, we've got him. And if he says his authority comes from God, then they're thinking, well, we'll accuse him of blasphemy. Since it really would be blasphemous to attack God's temple in God's name. Now, behind their question is really a deeper issue. They're not so interested in Jesus' authority. What they're really interested in is their own authority. They see themselves as the authorities in Israel. The authorities in Jerusalem. The authorities over the temple. They see themselves as being in charge of the temple. And so they see Jesus as invading their turf. He has invaded their sacred turf. They think, no, we are in charge here. And that's why they're challenging Jesus. Sure, they have a question for Jesus, but really what they're most interested in is not discovering the source of His authority, the origin of His authority. It's more about protecting their own authority. We'll see that as we go. They think they've set the perfect trap for Jesus, but Jesus is not going to fall into their trap. Instead, Jesus sets His own trap with a counter-question. He asks a question of His own. This is Jesus' kingly way of taking control of the situation. The one question becomes the questioner. And He says, I will answer your question if you will answer mine. And so He gives them a counter-question. A counter-question that concerns John's baptism. Where did John's baptism come from? Was it from heaven or from man? Was it a heavenly baptism or an earthly baptism? Was it authorized by God or authorized by humans? That's his question. Well, let's think about this for just a minute. John was a priest who was also a prophet. And so as a priest and prophet, he was authorized by the law. He had an official office. An office that included performing various Baptism. In fact, there were many baptisms prescribed in the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law. Torah authorized baptisms that John as a priest would have had authority to perform. Now you think about the temple. The temple had these great uh, bronze lavers, pools, for performing baptisms. But John did something unique. Yes, he was 
authorized by the law to perform these various baptismal washings. But John did something unique. Because the washings prescribed in the law were in one way or another connected with the temple and the temple system. But John's baptisms didn't seem to have a link to the temple. John, in fact, seemed to start a kind of counter-temple movement. With his baptisms, he seemed to be bypassing the temple. He didn't baptize people at the temple. He didn't send people to the temple for cleansing. No, he went out into the wilderness. He acted as if there were no temple in Israel. He acted as if Israel was in exile. And as if people could receive the forgiveness of their sins away from the temple, apart from the temple system. There in the wilderness, away from the temple, he baptized people who came to him. He baptized them in the wilderness as if Israel were starting over with a new exodus. That's really what John's baptism is like. John was the forerunner. He expected Jesus to bring in that promised new exodus and with it a new kingdom and a new temple. John was authorized by the law. He had a lawful office. But there was a twist in the way he exercised that office. And so Jesus rightly raises the question, where did John's authority come from? Did it come from God or from man? Well, now the Sanhedrin is really stuck. They're the ones trapped. And they know this, so they huddle up to confer with each other. And they speak amongst themselves. They say, well, if we say John's baptism was from heaven, he's going to ask us, why didn't we believe John? Believe what, you might ask? Well, believe John's testimony about Jesus, that Jesus is indeed the one. He is the true king. He is the Messiah. And if we say John's baptism was legit, it's from heaven, Jesus is going to want to know, why didn't we believe John's testimony? But if we say that John's baptism was from men, well then we're going to have another problem on our hands. The crowd's going to be really upset with us. The crowd is going to turn on us because John, like all prophets, was persecuted during his lifetime, even in prison, and then beheaded. But like all prophets, after his death, he had become a hero to the people. And so they know that if they don't recognize John as a prophet, if they say that his baptism was just from men, they're going to have a big problem on their hands with the crowd. Because John's a lot more popular after his death than he was during his life. And so they come back to Jesus and they basically say, no comment. <laughs> no comment. No answer. They say, we do not know. And it's true, they don't know. They are stuck. They are truly clueless. Now, if this was a game of chess, this is where Jesus would say, checkmate. Checkmate, my friends. Jesus has now won. And thus is fulfilled the proverb of Solomon from the 26th chapter. Whoever digs a pit for another will fall into it himself. The Sanhedrin thought they were digging a pit for Jesus, but they have fallen into that pit themselves. They had hoped to trap Jesus and to silence Jesus. Instead, they are the ones trapped and silenced. And so the story ends with Jesus telling them, because you won't answer me, I won't answer you. I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. The Sanhedrin doesn't deserve an answer. 
for Jesus to give them a direct answer would have been casting pearls before swine because that's what these members of the Sanhedrin have become. They didn't come asking their question in good faith because they really wanted to know. It is obvious here they are not really interested in the truth. They're interested in power. They're interested in their own power. Preserving their own power. That's all they really care about. And so they're going to do whatever they can to maintain their power. And so we, we see here in their private conference, they are expedient. They are calculating. They are political pragmatists. They will gladly sacrifice truth if it means preserving their status. All they're concerned with is power, popularity, prestige, position. Their problem with Jesus' authority is they want to continue in their own authority. And so no, they weren't really worthy of an answer. They weren't truly seeking to know. They weren't really interested in truth. They weren't seeking truth. And I'll tell you, I think this applies to us today. If you refuse to believe the teaching of Jesus you have been given, no further teaching will be given. The criteria for receiving further truth is to believe the truth you have been given already. And if you won't believe that truth and put that truth into practice and submit to that truth, then Jesus doesn't owe you any more truth. He doesn't owe you answers. If you want to get answers from Jesus to your questions, you better believe and obey the things He's already given you. The things that you do know. The things that are clear. See, really, obedience is the great opener of eyes. Obeying the truth leads to greater knowledge of the truth. But disobedience is always blinding. The Sanhedrin disobeys Jesus and so they find themselves descending into deeper and deeper darkness because they won't believe the truth they have, they'll lose even that. Even that truth will be taken from them. Now, what does this whole story mean for us today? You know, I think people today ask the same question as the Sanhedrin. If we don't hear this question in the church, we certainly hear it in the world. But I think our hearts do ask this question because we're still sinners. And we don't always want to do what Jesus tells us to do. And so, there's this question. What authority does Jesus have? What right does Jesus have to tell me how to live my life? Why should I bind my life to this book and submit my life to this man, Jesus? Why should I submit to this authority, the Bible? And why should I let Jesus reign over me? By what right does Jesus have authority to tell me what to do? Why shouldn't I be distrustful and suspicious of His authority? Just like people in our culture are distrustful and suspicious of every other authority. Why listen to Jesus? Why submit to Jesus? Why submit to His Word? Why make Jesus and His Bible my authority? See again, the, the absolute authority of Jesus and His Word will always be offensive to us because we are sinners. And because Jesus asks us to do hard things. 
And because we are sinners, we will quite frankly do just what the Sanhedrin does here. We will always look for ways to avoid the authority claims of Jesus and His Word. And we will do this because we want to remain our own authority. I want to be in charge of my life. I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. I want to be in charge of my life. I don't want to have to submit to an ancient book or an ancient Jewish man who claimed to be the Messiah. We find all kinds of ways to evade the authority of Jesus and His Word. Some do this by denying Jesus is who He said He was. Others do it by attacking the Bible and trying to undermine the Bible. Or if they say, well, I'm going to take the Bible seriously, they will then twist its interpretation so that it makes no real demands on them. Whatever the case, one thing all sinners have in common is we want to rule ourselves. We want self-rule. We want autonomy. That's the way it's been ever since the garden. That's what Adam and Eve went for in the garden. Autonomy. Self-rule. Let's cast off the oppressive rule of God. We'll be our own authority. That's what we want. The philosopher Nietzsche said, if there were a God, how could I stand to not be that God? And that is the cry of every fallen human heart. And so we can get just as pragmatic and just as expedient as the Sanhedrin. We will do whatever it takes to preserve our power and our popularity and our prestige. We want to be our own gods, our own authority. But Jesus' response to the Sanhedrin challenges us today just as much as it did the Jewish leadership back then. In fact, I would say here, I don't really think Jesus was being all that evasive in his response to the Sanhedrin. I think in his response to the Sanhedrin, he gave them the clue that they needed to answer their question. Where does the authority of Jesus come from? Go back to John's baptism and you will find the answer. Way back to Mark chapter 1. That's how Mark begins his Gospel. For Mark, the beginning of the Gospel is the baptism of Jesus. In fact, what the Sanhedrin would have seen as bad news, Mark says, is the beginning of the good news. John's baptizing Jesus in the Jordan is good news. It's Gospel for us. Why is it good news? Well, we have to understand. We have to remember what happened when John baptized Jesus. And if you get this, you will see why the authority of Jesus and His Word actually is good news. Why Jesus is worth surrendering to. Why He is worth submitting to. Why He's worth giving up your would-be autonomy in order to follow. When you look at His baptism and you see what it really means, you see He is worth serving, worth trusting, worth loving. You see, He is a worthy King and a rightful King. So what happened when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan? Well, several things happened all at once. First, Mark tells us that God the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Those are words taken from Psalm 2 and from the prophet Isaiah to say that Jesus is the King. He's the true Son of God who has been appointed by God as King. And He is the One in whom the Father delights. And so if you want to know the pleasure of God, if you want to know the delight of God, the baptism of John tells us, get near Jesus. 
Because all the Father's joy has been poured into Jesus. Jesus is the One in whom the Father delights. This is His eternal Son. His promised King. The Father delights in Him. And so the Father also delights in all who trust Him. And all who obey Him. And all who become like Him. If you want to know the Father's good pleasure, then serve Jesus. Get near to Jesus. Get next to Jesus. Be like Jesus. The Father says to the Son, You are My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All those who are united to Jesus by faith and by baptism share in that same fatherly, divine pleasure. That's the first thing that happens. second thing that happens when Jesus is baptized by John, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. The Spirit comes upon Jesus. The Spirit moves from heaven to earth, from the Father to the Son. Just as the Spirit was breathed into man to make Him a living being in the beginning, and just as the dove fluttered above the floodwaters in Noah's day to mark another new beginning, so Jesus comes to inaugurate a new humanity. The Spirit is poured out on Him that He might inaugurate a new way of being human. Humanity 2.0, you might call it. The upgraded and improved version. Humanity 1.0 crashed in the garden and got a fatal virus that destroyed the operating system. And now Jesus comes and He inaugurates a new humanity. Jesus receives the Spirit in His baptism so He can give that same Spirit to all who follow Him. And when the Spirit of Jesus, when the Spirit flows from the Father to the Son and then flows from the Son out to you, what happens? The Spirit gives you new life and new powers and new gifts and new direction and new likes and new loves. The Spirit gives you a submissive heart. The Spirit makes you willing by God's grace to follow Jesus as your King. The Spirit gives you eyes to see your sin. To see how you make a mess of things when you try to live autonomously. I mean, isn't that true when we try to do life our own way? When we try to do it on our own? We wreck things. We weren't made to live that way. We weren't made to live apart from God's authority. And when we try that, we wreck our lives. We destroy our lives. The Spirit comes to straighten what has been made crooked. To restore us and remake us. To teach us to live a better way. The Spirit comes to teach us to live under the authority of Jesus because that's what we were made for. And then finally, in His baptism, Jesus becomes King. This is obvious from everything that went before, but we need to single this out too. This is really an anointing ceremony, an inauguration, or a coronation, you could say. See, John was a prophet. And prophets in the Bible are kingmakers. Prophets are the ones who anoint kings. And so Samuel, the prophet, anointed Saul and David, Israel's first two kings. Jeroboam was anointed by a prophet. Jehu was anointed by Elisha. And on and on we could go. Prophets make kings. Prophets anoint kings. They crown kings. Well, John's baptism tells us Jesus is a king. John's baptism tells you where Jesus gets His authority, where His authority comes from. It comes from His Father. It is a gift. It is a grant. It is a bestowal. The Father declared Him to be King. And the Father has given Him authority over all. And this is why 
Jesus' baptism by John really is the beginning of the Gospel, the beginning of the good news. This is why John's baptism really serves as the launching pad for Jesus' whole ministry. It's the beginning of His ministry. And Jesus is going to move, if you look at the whole arc, the whole trajectory of John's Gospel, Jesus is going to move from this baptism by John in the Jordan to ultimately being seated at His Father's right hand in heaven. That's the movement of Mark's Gospel. But you know, a funny thing happens to Jesus on the way to the throne. A funny thing happens to Jesus as He moves from the baptism of John to being seated at His Father's right hand. Something interesting happens. And this shows us the authority bestowed on Jesus is a different kind of authority than the world has ever known. What happens between His baptism in the Jordan and His ascension to the Father's right hand? What happens is the cross. And what the cross shows us is ultimately this is an authority not based merely on sheer power, but an authority based on sacrificial love. Oh yes, Jesus has absolute power. But He uses that power in absolute love. He uses that power, that absolute power, in absolute service and in absolute humility and in absolute wisdom. He uses His authority not to just boss you around as just another tyrant. He uses His authority to serve you. He uses His authority to take responsibility for you. That's a way of thinking about why Jesus came into the world and manifested Himself to Israel and to the nations. He came to claim a bride for Himself. But to have that bride, He had to die for her. He had to take responsibility for her debts and pay them off. Which is what His death is all about. It's His way of claiming a bride for Himself, winning His bride, cleansing His bride. See, what does Jesus do as your ruler? As your ruler, He doesn't punish you for your sins. He takes responsibility for your sins. He takes the punishment you deserve because of your sin. He's the kind of king who takes the sins of all His people onto His back and suffers and dies for them. So we as His subjects could be forgiven and free. All through Mark's Gospel, we've been, we've seen Jesus talking about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and what's going to happen when he gets there. And now he's in Jerusalem and what's happening? Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the city of David. It was the royal city. Jesus went there to be crowned king. That's where you go to claim your throne. But how is he crowned? Through his cross. His coronation is on a cross with a crown of thorn. Why did He come to the kingly city? To be crowned and to be crucified. Indeed, you could say to be crowned by being crucified. He came to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, but that throne took the shape of a cross. Now this is true authority. This is authority, but it is authority that bleeds. We should be willing to yield our lives to the authority of Jesus because He bled for us. Why follow Jesus? Why submit to His authority? Because He bled for you. He is worthy. He is oh so worthy 
to be your coach and to be your conductor and yes, to be your king. Authority that is willing to bleed. Authority that bleeds for others is authority you can trust. And so you can trust Jesus in His authority to tell you what's best for your family and what's best for your marriage and what's best for your work and what's best for your body and what's best for your money. Jesus can tell you those things right here in His Word. And you can know they're trustworthy and they're for your good. Why? Because Jesus is a King who suffered and bled for you. What more could you ask? What more could you ask of a King? Living life under His authority leads to flourishing. Indeed, it's the only way for us to flourish. Rejecting His authority, fighting with His authority can only lead to frustration. Jesus shows us good authority. He shows us what good authority looks like. What authority looks like when it's exercised for the good of others. He shows us what happens when absolute authority and absolute love come together and are perfectly aligned. Because that's what happens at the cross. The cross is all about authority. Bad authority figures came together to crucify Jesus. The Jewish and the Roman leadership, leadership in church and in state, came together to kill Him. It was the ultimate abuse of power on the part of the chief priests and Herod and Pilate. But when Jesus willingly died that death, it was the ultimate exercise of good authority. Because don't be fooled, when Jesus died, He was still in charge. He was every bit as in charge then as at any other time. In fact, in John chapter 10, He says, no one takes My life from Me. I lay it down of My own authority. And He says, I have authority to take it up again. I started out this morning talking about trigger warnings and talking about how modern people are always suspicious of authority. And perhaps we do have good reason to distrust authority because we've seen so much abuse of authority. That's why so many in our day are anti-establishment. But all our questions about authority are answered at the cross. All our suspicions about authority come to an end at the cross. Indeed, the cross turns our tables on our suspicions. The cross gets you questioning your own claims to authority. So you really can't be suspicious of a king's authority when that king has already died for you. When that king has already taken your sins upon himself in order to rescue you from death. That is an authority. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for giving us Your Son, a King who has all authority, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, a King who wields that authority in perfect love and service and wisdom all for our good. He is a King who never makes a bad decision or gives a bad law. Everything He does is for our flourishing. He's always the first to attack and He never has to retreat because He has already won the battle for us. Father, we thank You as our King, as our authority. He has taken responsibility for our sins and He has the authority to declare us.
forgiven. So we embrace His authority. We see it as good news. By Your Spirit, help us to live joyfully and gladly under His authority. This we pray in His name. Amen.